Welcome to We Mentor Mondays with Nancy podcast. Get inspired. Break through to new dimensions with your entrepreneurial peers on the path to self-leadership mastery and life success. Redefine how you lead as you redesign your business. I call this dual innovation leadership. Take charge of who you next become. Feel more deeply to think, act, lead, and mentor more clearly and effectively. Discover something new from our meaningful conversation today. Hi, welcome to We Mentor Mondays with Nancy. It's me, Nancy. Yes, I'm back after a six-week hiatus. I'm feeling energized to be back. The time off allowed me to work with clients more in-depthly and really move uh, uh, deeply into the work of shifting how we're leading and getting products into stores and working with authors and brainstorming and helping them figure out what they're doing and bring clarity into the work that they're doing and all kinds of other projects I've been involved in. Totally love it. I've been integrating some significant life events with which if you've made any significant changes in your life, it takes a little time to integrate what you've experienced and notice how you want your life different and shift that in that direction. I also was able to attend a Winnipeg celebration of life for a beloved uncle. And so the break was well worth it as it's rejuvenated my spirits and I have new ideas and new inspirations and I want to share everything with you. So we're um, going to start episode 376 with um, Dr. Melanie Joy in examining how we can end injustice everywhere. So let's dive in. We don't help people see different things. We help them see the same things differently. That's a quote by Dr. Melanie Joy. Dr. Melanie Joy's work has profoundly impacted me, similar to the quote that I just mentioned. Through her teachings, I have gained a new perspective on my diet and switched to plant-based foods, eliminating all meat, dairy, and egg products a few months before our first podcast conversation on June 7th, 2021. Melanie helped me understand the psychology or invisible system that trains us to eat certain animals called carnism. Not only do I feel physically healthier, but I also feel more aligned with my ethical values. It no longer makes sense to me to harm animals when I have committed to not hurting myself or others. Why would I eat something with eyes if I am dedicated to treating all beings with kindness and respect? My view of everything has become clearer and more relational since reading Melanie's research, participating in online webinars, and our podcast conversations. I've learned so much. I believe she's such a remarkable teacher, mentor, entrepreneurial leader, and advocate. Her unique insights into oppression and social transformation in relationships explain why our world is so dysfunctional and what we can do about it. I appreciate Dr. Melanie Joy and how she is courageously pioneering a global movement to wake us up from our oppressive slumber and help us get out of the dark ages, as she says, in how we relate to ourselves, other humans, animals, and the planet. She practices integrity and honors dignity in every interaction. We can too. 
My daughter Olivia heard Melanie on Simon Hill's Plant Proof podcast a few years ago. After purchasing a few of Melanie's books, like Getting Relationships Right, Beyond Beliefs, Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows, and Powerarchy, I emailed her assistant. In June of 2021, I interviewed Melanie in two podcast conversations. I re-aired those conversations in 2022. You can revisit those two podcast conversations in the episode resources at WeMentor.com. We discussed getting relationships right in one conversation. She helped us understand how to practice integrity and honor dignity through connection, communication, security, and compassion. Those practices require us to be mindful, compassionate, and accountable in how we listen and what we say and do. In the second podcast conversation, we talked about why we love dogs, eat pigs, and wear cows in the other. It was our introduction into carnism, a term Melanie coined to describe an invisible system that teaches us to eat certain animals. Today's conversation is focused on how Melanie has been evolving on her path with others, eradicating justice everywhere and moving beyond oppression. How to End Injustice Everywhere is the title of her seventh and newest book that captures what she has learned traveling to 35 countries. If you are doing the vitally important work of ending injustice, her book and our podcast conversations are for you. So to give you just a slightly more, um, just give you, to give you slightly more information about Dr. Melanie Joy, She's an award-winning psychologist specializing in the psychology of oppression and social transformation in relationships. She is a longtime advocate for justice and was a lecturer at the University of Massachusetts, Boston for 11 years, teaching courses on privilege and oppression, feminist psychology, psychological trauma, and animal rights. She has written seven books, including the best-selling Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows. And she's the eighth recipient of the Ahisma Award, previously given to the Dalai Lama and Nelson Mandela for her work on global nonviolence. She's also the founding president of the international NGO Beyond Carnism. You can learn more about Melanie's work at carnism.org. Beyond Carnism is a U.S.-based international organization dedicated to exposing and transforming carnism, the invisible belief system that conditions people to eat certain animals. Beyond Carnism was established in 2012 after Melanie published Why We Love Dogs, Eat Pigs, and Wear Cows. This book introduced us to the term she coined carnism. It is worth mentioning that in the 2021 annual report, Melanie's organization, Beyond Carnism, registered over 10,000 people for webinars from 88 countries, received 20 million views in one week of the video, The Secret Reason We Eat Meat, and completed 50 trainings in 35 countries on five continents, expanding awareness and increasing healthy relating. On the Carnism.com website, it says, Carnism causes extensive suffering. Animal agriculture is responsible for the unnecessary slaughter of 72, yeah, 72 billion land animals and between 1 and 3 trillion fish and other aquatic animals worldwide per year. 
and it is a major contributor to environmental degradation, human disease, and human rights violations. However, the majority of people who eat animals are unaware that they are contributing to such destruction. At Beyond Carnism, we believe that people need and deserve to know the truth about carnism so they can make their food choices freely, because without awareness, there is no free choice. That's a quote by Dr. Melanie Joy and what is behind her successful Beyond Carnism uh, business and movement. Hi, Melanie. Welcome to We Mentor Mondays. Hi, Nancy. Well, thank you so much. Um, It's really nice to be back and connecting with you again. And I just so deeply appreciate your your passion and compassion and, you know, just just clear commitment to helping create a better world for all beings. I I, I really, really appreciate it. And, you know, thank you for the very warm welcome. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to the conversation with you today. And, uh, you know, we'll talk about, I think, you summed it up nicely when you were reading, um, I think, the, the kind of the direction that this conversation will go in, picking up where we left off, essentially, from our last conversations um, with the quote from our website, we don't see different things, we see the same things differently, which is from, you know, that was used by feminists in, I think, the 1970s. I really look forward to talking about seeing the same things differently with you. Oh, great. Okay. So your most recent book, How to End Injustice Everywhere, Understanding the Common Denominator Driving All Injustices to Create a Better World for Humans, Animals, and the Planet, is my new um, go-to reference as Mm -hmm. we work to end injustice. I think everyone should purchase this book. More than anything, you will psychologically feel relieved. Um, to understand these things of why, like, are we getting into these weird fights with people? Mm-hmm. Excuse me, I'm still getting over a, a cold. So you have such a gift for taking complexities and distilling concepts into practical nuggets that really help us move the dial on our understanding of the systems that we participate in on a daily basis that we are, you know, they're invisible. And so we, we're not understanding why we feel the way we do. So why did you decide to write this book? Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. I, you know, have somebody who, as, as you described earlier, you know, a lot of my, my work has focused on it beyond carnism has focused on exposing and transforming carnism, which is the invisible belief system that conditions people to eat certain animals. And, you know, I ended up it, when I was studying psychology, I studied the psychology of violence and nonviolence, um, you know, broadly, and then I really focused my work on the psychology of eating animals. Um, and I wrote my doctoral dissertation on that. So I had this sort of broader background in psychology, the psychology of violence and nonviolence, and then honed in on the psychology of eating animals. And this interest had emerged from my own life experience. I had, you know, always been a person who was quite sensitive to the suffering of others. Um, I came from a lot of people in my family were were quite fair-minded people. You know, they really cared about their impact on the world, their impact on others. They cared about having a better world, creating a better world, and, you know, compassionate people. And this is what I grew up in. I also grew up with a dog who I loved like a family member, and I grew up eating meat, eggs, and dairy on a regular basis. And over the course of so many years, I didn't think about how strange it was, you know, that I could be loving this dog. I could be petting my dog with one hand and, you know, eating a pork chop with the other. That 
pork chop that had once been, you know, an animal who was at least as intelligent and sentient as my dog. I, I did not connect those dots. In 1989, I ended up getting sick and eating a contaminated from eating a contaminated hamburger. I wound up in the hospital on intravenous antibiotics. I became vegetarian by accident. And I was learning about how to cook for myself. I stumbled upon information about animal agriculture and what I learned absolutely shocked and horrified me. I just could not believe the extent of the suffering and the harm to non-human animals, to the planet, to human health, my own body. You know, But what shocked me in some ways even more was that nobody I talked to about what I was learning was willing to hear what I had to say. They would say things like, don't tell me that you'll ruin my meal or they'd call me a crazy, you know, radical vegan hippie propaganda. And and so this was really my introduction to the interest area that we're going to be talking about today, which is the psychology of violence and, and nonviolence, or we could say the psychology of injustice and you know transforming injustice. I was asking myself, how is it possible that rational, compassionate, fair-minded people, you know, could just stop thinking and feeling when it came to what could only be called a global atrocity? In my research, you know, the, my research led me, and I had been one of those people too, right? I was like somebody who cared about other animals. Of course, I would never want to contribute to their suffering, Un unnecessary, yeah. completely intensive suffering. Um, and yet I was doing it on a regular basis. And, you know, I thought, my goodness, if I can figure out, if I can understand, you know, why it is that good people enable and participate in harmful practices, and maybe, you know, this will help in an understanding of how to change that pattern. And so this led me to my sort of discovery of what I came to call carnism, the invisible belief system that conditions people to eat certain animals. And I, I recognized, you know, carnism is essentially the opposite of veganism. And what I did was not only identify carnism, this belief system that conditions us to disconnect from the truth of our experience, from our authentic thoughts and feelings. When it comes to those animals, we've learned to classify as edible. Not only did I identify carnism, but I deconstructed the system. What I did was I analyzed, okay, what is this system? Okay, well, here, it's got a name. Well, yeah. how is it structured? How does it keep itself intact? How is it that millions Billions of people all around the world are acting in direct opposition to their deepest values of caring and fairness, compassion and justice on a minute to minute basis, you know, on a daily right. basis without having any idea as to what they're doing. And so when I understood, okay, I have an understanding of the architecture of the system, how it's yeah. structured, and of, yeah. most importantly, of the mentality that keeps the system alive, the way that our psyches have been hijacked so that we have these distorted perceptions. We look at meat, we see food rather than a dead animal. We feel appetized rather than disgusted, you know, distort our perceptions and our feelings, right? So that we, we, we participate in harmful behaviors. And so I, after having worked on carnism awareness for a number of years, I began to, to realize that, um, you know, in, in the movement that I'm most active in, I, I'm active in a variety of different, you know, uh, on a, in a variety of different causes and different ways and very concerned about, you know, human well-being and environmental well-being as well as animal well-being. It's all interconnected. I was seeing, you know, 
very frustrated with seeing similar dynamics play out when people, for example, um, even in the vegan movement would start to talk about racism. You know, there'd be this defensiveness in the conversation, start to talk about sexism and patriarchy, defensiveness would arise. People who are feminists start talking about veganism and eating animals, defensiveness would arise. And, And I started really thinking about, you know, how after I had written about carnism, written about why we love dogs and really analyzed that system, carnism and the mentality that drives it. This was a blueprint. You know, this is a blueprint. And and of course, other people had been doing really important work to try to figure out what is the psychology that is driving us to engage in these problematic behaviors. And, And carnism is essentially structured in the very same way as other systems of oppression or unjust systems. It's structured just like patriarchy slash sexism. It's structured just like racism. It's structured just like classism. These systems share the same structure. And most importantly, they stem from the very same mentality, the same mentality that drives us to exploit, abuse, commit injustice toward other animals is the mentality that causes us to exploit and abuse, you know, carry out injustice toward other humans and toward the environment. This is also the same mentality that causes us to interact with our family members, our friends, other people we work with, people in our own organizations in ways that are dysfunctional, that bring about the opposite outcomes of what we want. And so I wanted to write a book. Really, I wrote why we, you know, how to end injustice everywhere, because this, what I call this non-relational mentality, it drives us to relate in ways that are dysfunctional to other individuals, between social groups, to non-human animals in the environment. And it's the primary cause of infighting, which reduces the effectiveness of the very groups that are working to end injustice. And when we understand this mentality and how to shift it, we can transform our lives and we can transform our world. It's huge. You can apply this also to, well, religious organizations. And I had a lot of interactions and participated in leadership roles in the Catholic Church. Just I I felt like it was the most dysfunctional system I had ever participated in. And I was so Mm -hmm. disillusioned. Um, But when I read your material, it put together... I, I I don't think I would have been able to make the leap into going plant based. I mean, you laid the groundwork so it's more psychologically, it makes more sense. And so because I work through my disillusionment with all of our training that just, you know, I, I just feel like we're in a place where our whole leadership and our structures are just so dysfunctional, we're killing each other. And you help me understand that we really need to stay connected with our compassion and our natural ability to to have justice and fairness. Mm. Can we dive into a little deeper what lies at the root of injustice, oppression, and, uh, well, you just described that, yeah. um, but would you like to go a little bit deeper into the forms of it? Yeah, sure. Well, I can go deeper into the psychology of it first and or or yeah. like yeah, some of the relational dysfunction and then I'll go into the mentality, uh the non-relational mentality. So, you know, when we think about some of the most pressing problems in our world, you know, which is like war and poverty, um, you know, racism, patriarchy, animal exploitation, climate change. We can see that these problems share a common denominator. You know, we often look at the big problems in our world and we think, oh, we can feel so overwhelmed, you know, and think we have to just like 
target one issue at a time and it can be so overwhelming. But when you think about it, they really do share a common denominator. And this common denominator is relational dysfunction. What that is, is dysfunctional ways of relating, as I mentioned earlier, right? Relating between social groups, relating between individuals, relating between humans and non-humans, and relating between animals in and the environment. And so a common solution to ending all of these problems is actually the opposite. It is building what I call relational literacy. Relational literacy is the understanding of an ability to practice healthy ways of relating. And I know we'll we'll get into that um, a little bit later. Now, relational dysfunction stems from this mentality that I talked about. I call this the non-relational mentality. This is a mentality that we have inherited from these dysfunctional systems, which I'll talk about um, briefly. Systems such as, as I said, you know, racism, sexism, you know, or patriarchy and so on, these dysfunctional systems. And we can just think about, you know, the norm in our world in many ways is to think in a way that is non-relational. And I'll I'll talk about what exactly this mentality looks like in a minute. Yeah. But this non-relational mentality, it, it causes us to act in ways that bring about the opposite outcomes of what we actually want. So, Let's talk a little bit about relational literacy so people can understand this. I'm actually going to talk about a healthy mentality and then explain this unhealthy mentality so that people can come at it from uh, a perspective that's a little bit easier to understand. Relational literacy is based on, you know, or made up of, I should say, a number of principles and tools, right? Learning how to be relationally literate. This is something anybody can build, anybody can do if they want to. At the core of all of these principles and tools is a formula. I call this the formula for healthy relating. Now, in any interaction, like this, let me back up. This formula applies to all forms of relating. It applies to long-term relationships and it applies to brief interactions. Relationships are really just a series of interactions. It also applies to how we communicate. Communication is the primary way we relate. The formula applies to how we're relating to other animals, to the environment, to other humans, and it also applies to how we relate to ourselves. Most people, you know, don't think about this, but we are always relating to ourselves through our self-talk, for example, and through the choices that we make that impact our future selves. And here's the formula. In a healthy interaction or relationship, whatever, we practice integrity and we honor dignity. And I'm going to unpack this, these terms for people. This leads us to have a sense of security and connection. Mm-hmm. So practicing integrity simply means that we practice the core moral values of caring or compassion and justice or fairness. I can simplify this even further for listeners. We practice respect. We treat someone else the way we would want to be treated if we were in their position. So when you practice integrity, that's what you do. When you honor somebody's dignity, that means you perceive or you think of them and treat them both as having inherent worth, fundamental worth. That means you see them as no less worthy of being treated with respect or of occupying place on this planet than anybody else. When you honor, practice integrity and honor dignity, 
you help create a sense of security and connection. Just take a moment and think about a healthy relationship in your life, like a a relationship that you think is a really good relationship. Chances are you trust that that other person treats you with respect and you trust that other person honors your dignity. They see you as a fundamentally worthy being. They don't look at you as being less than in any way. And chances are you feel secure and connected in that relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Now, relating Absolutely. like most things in life is not an either or phenomenon. I should say healthy relating. It's not an either or phenomenon. It's not either we relate in a way that's healthy or we relate in a way that's unhealthy or dysfunctional. It can be more or less so. So I call this the relational health spectrum, right? These behaviors exist on a spectrum. So you can practice integrity and honor dignity more or less so. On one side of this spectrum, on the healthy side, are what I call relational attitudes and behaviors. These are the attitudes and behaviors that reflect integrity and honor dignity. On the other side of the spectrum are what I call non-relational attitudes and behaviors. These attitudes and behaviors violate integrity and harm dignity, and they lead to a sense of disconnection and insecurity. And also, when we're talking about systems, they also lead to unjust power imbalances. So again, if you think about a relationship in your life, that's not a good relationship. Maybe it's with somebody you've never even met before, somebody online who's been, you know, unkind to you. Chances are you do not feel that they practice integrity toward you. You don't feel respected by them. You don't feel that they honor your dignity. They harm your dignity and you feel insecure and disconnected from them. So this is this what I call the non-relational mentality. The non-relational mentality is the mentality that we inherit that reflects this other side of the spectrum, basically. We think in ways that are non-relational. And we've all learned to do this. We've all inherited ways of thinking that cause us to disconnect from others. And our, you know, there's been a a tremendous amount of research now. We we know that humans are naturally hardwired to feel empathy for others, and that includes other animals. And we also know that humans are naturally hardwired to seek meaningful connections, to feel connected with others. And we seek to avoid the pain of disconnection. So we, we naturally, naturally want to feel connected with others and care about our impact on others. And yet many of us act in the opposite in ways that bring about the opposite outcomes of, you know, creating security and connection simply because we have inherited this way of thinking, this non-relational way of thinking, this non-relational mentality that causes us to treat others in ways that essentially drive them away or cause harm. And you you t- and underneath that is like there there's this because we don't have the skills we end up in these situations because we've only been taught of how to have power over others you have to take charge you have to take control i've found myself you know when i'm just trying to i you know connect with someone you know like they're surprised that i don't want to compete mm-hmm. um to see who is you know going to win the the discussion when we're in a relational relationship, what I've learned from you is it's about shared power. It's it's about having power with someone. It's relating to them and it's connecting with them. And it's understanding and listening deeply for what is their experience with something or someone. Can you build a little bit on that? 
point? Yeah. I mean, and what the nice thing about the formula is we can come back to that at any moment. Like it's at any moment when we're having an interaction with somebody and we're experiencing them as, you know, wielding power over us, like trying to get power or dominating us or something. And, you know, we, we can pause and we can ask ourselves, you know, how do I feel very often, you know, when somebody is treating us in a way that's disrespectful, it's actually very subtle. You know, a lot of times, and you might relate to this, a lot of times we kind of like emerge from a conversation, some interaction, and we just don't feel right. We feel a little bit smaller, a little bit less than, a little bit like worse about ourselves, maybe a little bit ashamed, whatever. And we don't know quite what went wrong, but we know that we just don't feel good. That's an interaction where, you know, the chances are that the person we were relating to was not practicing formula toward us. They weren't treating us the way they would want to be treated if they were in our position. They were not communicating with us in a way that honors our dignity, that shows that they perceive us as being worthy. They might be subtle put downs, for example. And so it's good, like during conversations, at any moment you can pause. If you notice that you're starting to feel a need to like, I don't know, assert power and control, you know, to, to use your your framing or or just if you notice that you're starting to feel uncomfortable for some reason pause and ask, ask yourself am i practicing the formula is this person do they seem like they're practicing the formula toward toward me at the end of the day if we can have as our goal in our interactions mutual understanding mutual connection this bypasses you know a, a lot of the problems that we encounter very often we go into a conversation into an interaction and we have an agenda and that agenda is to be right which means to make the other person wrong or the agenda is to win which means to make the other person lose um you know i know we'll talk about this a little bit later and and it's okay to like want to get your need, get a need met. Of course, we all feel that way. It's okay to have an opinion that you want the other person to hear. It's okay to even want the other person to really understand where you're coming from and maybe even to adopt your point of view. The problem is that we need to make our first step in an interaction mutual understanding. Mutual, the only reason that we communicate in the first place is because we're not mind readers. You know, so a lot of times we enter into a communication. And as I said, communication is the primary way we relate. We're not entering into this communication thinking, okay, I want to understand this other person's thoughts and feelings. And I want this other person to understand my thoughts and feelings. We're entering into a communication thinking, okay, I I have this agenda. I want to win. I want to convince this person that they're wrong. I want to change their mind, you know, whatever it may be. And that's what we're leading with. And that's where we often get into trouble. Yeah. I love your formula because it it helps us stop when we're noticing in a slight interaction when it's starting to go south and we're taking charge in a way that doesn't feel quite right for both people, um, that you can shift quickly to get back and in, in practicing um, your integrity and say, wait a minute, I'm not feeling quite right about this. Two things. One, there's two emotions that you talk about are below the surface, but always present in non-relational systems. What are those those two emotions below the surface? Yeah, well, there. I mean, sometimes they're not below the surface. Sometimes they're above the surface. But they're two of the most non-relational of emotions. Yeah. They're disconnecting emotions, and so, and and I'll I'll talk about them a little bit. And they're they're shame and contempt. 
And um, there are two sides, I call them two sides of the non-relational coin. And it can be really useful for anybody who wants to improve their capacity for their ability to create meaningful connections with others and also with themselves. As I said, we're always relating to ourselves to really understand these two very often misunderstood emotions. So let's, we can start out and talk about shame. And I want to first differentiate shame from guilt. Most people assume that shame and guilt are basically the same thing. And we actually even use these words interchangeably, Um, but they're really not. They're different emotions and there's an important distinction between them. Guilt is the feeling that we have when we believe that we have done something wrong or we have done something bad. Okay. So guilt is a feeling we have about a behavior. We feel guilty when we think to ourselves, "Uh oh, I did something bad. Guilt is actually a really important emotion for us, for people to be able to feel, people who can't feel guilt, who don't feel guilt, you know, don't course correct. They don't feel the remorse that's necessary to rectify problematic behaviors. They can just start, you know, can keep repeating the same problematic behavior over and over again. Shame is not how we feel about a behavior. Shame is how we feel about ourselves. We feel guilty when we think I've done something bad. We feel shame when we think I am bad. Now, because we have been born into such a relationally dysfunctional mess of a world where like relational dysfunction is is the norm, you know, many of us immediately, as soon as we feel guilt, it flips right into shame. Um, You know, so I always recommend trying to avoid guilting people just like we need to avoid shaming people. So shame is the feeling of being less than. More specifically, it's the feeling of being less worthy than others, of being treated with respect or of occupying space on this planet. Shame is how we feel when our dignity is harmed. And most people carry around a great deal of shame because we've been born into a relationally dysfunctional mess of a world, as I've said, and and shaming behaviors, attitudes and behaviors are like so widespread, so epidemic, they're really the norm. And Most of us not only carry around shame inside of us, but we also hide our shame because we've learned to feel ashamed of feeling ashamed. So we hide our shame Mm -hmm. from others. We hide our shame from ourselves. And we assume that other people are not carrying this baggage of shame, which many of them absolutely are. And so we, you know, end up being even less sensitive to adding to that shame than we, we might otherwise be. Now, there have been a lot of interesting studies on shame. And they, these studies have shown that people are highly defensive. And I'm sure listeners and you, you know, can relate to this because we've all lived it. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we are highly defensive against feeling shame and even the threat of being ashamed. Soon as you can tell that somebody is going to communicate with you in a way that is shaming, that's putting you down, communicating that you are less than you are probably going to withdraw from them or attack them in self-defense. You are probably not going to be receptive to whatever they're going to trying to communicate with you because they have shown that they're not a safe person for you to be open with and vulnerable with. When people feel ashamed, they go into a state of fight, flight, or freeze, essentially, you know, this state of heightened arousal. They have less access to their rational faculties. So they're thinking less rationally and less access to their empathy. So they're feeling less empathy. And yet many of us, when we are trying to get other people to change or see our point of view, or we're not happy with people, we want our way, we want to change them in some way, we use shame 
subtle or overt shame. And we think, well, if I could just make them feel badly enough, they'll finally get it and come around. But really what ends up happening is we create the opposite outcomes of what we want and we feed the epidemic of shame in the world. And shame is at the heart, you know, at the foundation of many, many of the problematic behaviors, you know, we see in the world. That's a whole other conversation. So how does this relate to the formula? When we violate the formula, very often when we are Well, not very often. When we violate the formula, when we're communicating with somebody, you know, we're relating with somebody in a way that's not honoring their dignity, that is shaming. We're relating to them as though they are less than, they're less worthy of us or others of being treated with respect. And people who feel disrespected or feel the threat of being disrespected tend to, as I said, withdraw or attack in self-defense. Shame is a very disconnecting emotion. If we want to have more connected, healthy relationships, the less we contribute to shaming others, the more connected our relationships and healthy our relationships will be. Now, the flip side of shame is contempt. We feel ashamed when we feel that we're less worthy than others. We feel contempt when we feel that we're more worthy than or superior to others, particularly morally superior, right? So when we feel contempt, we're looking down on others. And contempt is an incredibly, incredibly disconnecting emotion as well. In fact, studies, um, John Gottman and his colleagues, his wife, I believe his wife as well, and his colleagues did really interesting studies. And they found that, you know, contempt is the one emotion most likely to destroy relationships, all kinds of relationships, right? So and and I'm sure listeners can understand this because, you know, when you are around somebody and you experience them as feeling contempt for you, you do not want to be in their presence. You know, they're not a safe person for you to be around. Shame and contempt are very disconnecting emotions, right? And they are, as I said, they're two sides of a coin. And both of them only exist There are emotions that can only emerge within us when we have bought into a story, a myth, this false narrative that I write about in How to End Injustice, this myth that we have all learned to believe is true. And that is this myth or belief in a hierarchy of moral worth, I call it. This is the belief that some individuals, some groups are more worthy of respect, being treated with respect than others. And you can see that this belief is at the core of all forms and expressions of injustice, whether we're talking about racism, you know, or other isms, or whether we're, you know, even engaging in behavior that's outside of a broader belief system or or social system. When we're, whenever we're treating somebody in a way, whenever we're in a position of contempt and treating somebody in a way that's violating the formula, we're treating them disrespectfully. We've elevated ourselves because on some level, we believe that this person doesn't believe, doesn't deserve to be treated with respect. We might say, well, hey, you did it to me first. Well, hey, your politics suck. Well, hey, you're causing harm in the world. I have a right to treat you in a way that's non-relational because X, Y, or Z. But the problem is the more we engage in non-relational behaviors for whatever reason, the more we feed the epidemic of non-relational behaviors because these behaviors are contagious. And that's, that's see a whole other conversation. Yeah, I see this happen in business ownership when um, em- employees are not 
performing in the way that the business owner really wants them to perform. And the business owner starts having contempt. It actually is reciprocal, right? You're, you know, the business owner is having contempt to the, toward them and the employee is having contempt toward their power over them and their ability to decide, you know, whether or not they're going to continue working there. Right. And- right. And so it's really like shame and contempt are there are emotions that we all feel that are normal emotions. We can do it to ourselves, by the way. I mean, we we shame ourselves too, right? We shame and contempt only exist in relation in, in comparison, right? You can't you can't feel ashamed if there's nobody you're comparing yourself to who you think is better, you know, or more worthy than right, you are. Right. So okay. and we can do this to ourselves when we compare ourselves to an idealized version of ourselves. And we shame ourselves. I could have, I should have, I should be different than how I am. And these are normal emotions, you know, so I don't want people to think like, oh, I shouldn't be feeling shame and contempt. I would say just recognize your shame and contempt as red flags. You know, they're just, they're data points. They're data points. And they're data points alerting you to the fact that you have lost connection with your empathy. That's all. You have lost connection with your empathy. It is impossible to look down on someone if you're looking at the world through their eyes. And it's impossible to look up at someone, it, you know, if you're, yeah. a lot of us need to self-empathize more as well. Yeah, that's so good. Um, as Dr. Angela Maya Singh Bayes, the International Board of Amnesty International Chair said, your book sheds light, we're bringing it back to your book, um, which is all that we've talked about is contained in your book. Your book sheds light, she says, on how a just world may be closer than we dare to dream. Please explain this because before we reading the review copy that I received of your book, mm-hmm. it, but it seemed the opposite to me. Well, I mean, this doesn't mean that there's not a lot of work to be done. And it doesn't mean we're going to get that work done in time to prevent ecocide, right? So there are big problems that need to be addressed. There's there's no question. But one of the goals of the book was to really help people to not feel like all of these huge problems, many, 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 many countless problems, and a lot of them huge in the world, in our lives, are somehow all separate from one another. It, it can feel very overwhelming when we when we recognize that there really are these very clear common denominators that yeah. are you know, this this particular common denominator. You know that's driving all of them. This is not the only problem, obviously, relational dysfunction, but it's really a key part of the problem. And when we can recognize that, it makes it easier for us to appreciate that. Every time we are building relational literacy, every time we are practicing the formula, every time we are relating in a healthy way, we are contributing to the greater good in some way. And so we don't have to just see ourselves as taking on one form of injustice at a time within our own lives and within the world. Every time we practice healthy relational relationality, and particularly those people, those of us who are advocates who are really actively working towards social transformation, we're actually working to, when we bring our relational understanding and our relational skills to our work, we're working to transform all forms of injustice simultaneously. I mean, obviously, we only have so much energy in the day, and we have to focus on whatever cause it is we've decided to focus on. However, when advocates recognize that, you know, for all of us, whether we're working for justice for humans, animals, or the environment, we all actually have the same ultimate goal, which is to create a more relational world for everyone. 
right? Yeah. So we don't feel like our, se- our our efforts are all separate and distinct, and we have to just sort of try to solve one problem at a time. We can recognize sort of the interconnectedness of these problems. And, and also when we have the basic tools to help change these or transform these problems, we can feel a lot more empowered in our efforts. And particularly when we apply these tools to our own groups and movements that are working toward justice so that we can do this work more effectively. Yeah, it really brings home, you know, that we've got skin in the game, right? Like we can do something. It's very empowering to have these relational skills because we can do something in our every interaction. It's Mm -hmm. not out there beyond me. I can't solve anything. No, this is very empowering. Um, These are the tools that are within ourselves that we can pull on. And wherever we're at on the dimension of of our relational skills, um, we can improve them and increase them. And we can bring a lot of more fun into relationships if we're not looking at them so focused, like I got to get this right. No, Mm. it's on a spectrum. Um, and give people a lot of latitude and, right. you know, have do-overs and say, oh, this came off wrong. You know, let's try it this way and not going to disconnecting in the relationships, you know, instead of say, what can mm-hmm. I do to stay in the relationship that's not compromising myself, um, but that's really empowering us to stay relational and come back to our compassion all the time. Why do you say that we'll never have a truly just world if we don't include animals in our analysis? As I was saying earlier, the the very same mentality that drives us to harm animals drives us to harm humans, or I should say vice versa, that drives us to harm humans drives us to harm animals. Um, and so it's it causes us to have distorted perceptions and to disconnect from our empathy. And this mentality, as I mentioned earlier, it, it's contagious. It reproduces itself. Um, so it's, um, let me think of a, a good way to, a good example. I think a lot of the reason, a key reason why so many people who are supportive of progressive causes, you know, human rights causes or environment, the environment, um, you know, they support movements for social justice or, you know, environmental protection, they tend to view the animal justice movement as fundamentally different from them, or even in opposition to these other movements is, is because they haven't really understood the common denominator driving all forms of injustice. If we hope to have a truly just world, we really need to take an inclusive approach to ending injustice. Like when we think about, for example, you know, a lot of psychologists recognize that you know, a child who harms animals is, you know, a potential risk to humans at some point later in life, yeah. at least. Yeah. They recognize yeah. this because they recognize that this mentality that causes anybody to look at others as objects, you know, you know, objectifying others is always the first step toward causing harm, you know, or at least a key step toward causing harm to them. That when we objectify other animals, when we see them as objects rather than beings, right? And when we can carry out harm to those other animals and really shut down our empathy in the process, that this is exactly the same thing that happens when we harm other humans. It's the same kind of process that when we harm uh, when we harm other humans, and people assume that we can just you know compartmentalize the, our mentalities. And to some degree, we can. You know, to some degree, people can. Of course, you know they they eat animals and would never eat humans. But this compartmentalizing comes from a lot of social conditioning, like very deep conditioning, and it nevertheless 
affects the way that we think about and treat others in various ways. So if we fail to pick out the common threads that are woven through all systems of injustice, the common ways of thinking, the common attitudes, the common behaviors, and we don't really target injustice at its roots, which is at this level of the psychology or the mentality, we're just going to keep recreating injustices in new forms. I mean, and we can see this has happened throughout human history. We stamp out, you know, we end one atrocity, we end one, you know, horrible atrocity towards certain humans, and then we pick up another one and start another an unjust war toward another group. Animals uh, belong in this conversation. We can't have truly a truly just and relational world without animals included in the conversation. Excellent. All right. In our next conversation, um, we're going to go into uh, relational communication by um, focusing on having a healthy process and some of the components um, around that. Thank you for um, the work that you're doing. I I just, you have helped me so much in my life. I I can't even express the depth of gratitude that I have toward you. All right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in and um, stay connected. um, Stay with us. I'll see you next week. You want to expand your leadership skills and become more resilient and competent as a business owner? Do you want to bring more meaning to your relationships and more purpose to your business? Are you ready to take charge of how you innovate, create, and run your business? Our dual innovation leadership process will help you redefine how you lead as you redesign your business. We collaborate with you to do what will work for you as you evolve and change. We start with where you are, whether you are turning around a financial crisis, growing to the next level or somewhere in between. We address your immediate needs, shore up business development gaps, expand relational literacy, and build upon your entrepreneurial leadership skill sets with this short-term results orientation and a long-term perspective. Start by subscribing to this podcast at WeMentor.com or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. If you are ready to hire a mentor, contact me at Nancy at WeMentor.com. When we mentor, you create better life and a more fulfilling future as an entrepreneurial leader slash innovator as a competent business owner slash practitioner as a mentor slash role model and as a human being courageously living a meaningful life as gandhi said be the change you wish to see in the world get involved today it's never too late to change your life and how you lead